Welcome to episode 217 of Crack the Customer Code, where Adam and Jeannie debate what works, and yet everybody wins. Well, I think it's safe to say our guest today is someone we would both describe as dynamic. Yes. I mean, I thought we were the dynamic duo, but then Jill (laughs) brings dynamic to a whole new level. She does. And I think the the conversation that we had with her really covers everything from, you know, how do we communicate with our boss to which pill should we take in the matrix? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think there's only one pill if you want to stay in the matrix, but if you want to break (laughs) free from the matrix. (laughs) Oh, I love that you're geeking out over the definition of that. Okay, everybody, just to be clear, if you're ever in the matrix... (laughs) It's important information. Our our, <laughs> our listeners need to know. <laughs> oh, I know how to wind you up now. I'll just like have false information about the matrix. <laughs> false information. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I know the pills. It's the, I wouldn't get too technical with that because I may not notice, honestly. But I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> but Jill is definitely broken free from the matrix and sees communication in a different way in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And I think brings a fresh lens, a fresh set of eyes and just some fresh perspectives to how we communicate and how we approach communication. I agree. And I think this is something that applies no matter what kind of job somebody has or where they are in their career. Communication is something that we all need to always be aware of and how do we improve and how do we really connect with people. That's a that's a really big thing in any role. And so I, I'm excited about this one because I think it's something that a lot of different people can learn from Jill. Oh, absolutely. And it's funny, I just wrote a blog post before we did uh, like a week ago called uh, Customer Services Most Important Skill Communication, mm. where I just argued it is by far single you know, singled out the most important skill in customer service. Lots of other ones are important, but mm-hmm. without communication, everything breaks down. And Jill really uh, helps us up our communication game. So it's a, it's a fantastic tie-in with customer service and customer experience. I agree. So why don't we introduce everybody to our guest? Jill Scheifelbein is an award-winning entrepreneur, author, and recovering academic. She taught business communication at Arizona State University for 11 years before venturing into entrepreneurship. Jill's business, The Dynamic Communicator, helps organizations increase sales and create consumer advocates. Jill runs the Dynamic Accelerator program, helping solo and micro entrepreneurs accelerate business growth. Her latest book, Dynamic Communication, 27 Strategies to Grow, Lead, and Manage Your Business, hit stores in March of 2017. Jill, we're so happy to have you here. Thanks for being on the show. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you guys. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, thanks, Jill. It is so great to have you. And this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. So I want to jump right into the title and you know, sort of your central thesis. So what exactly is dynamic communication and how does it differ from, well, you know, what Jeannie and I do? <laughs> Well, I, I don't know how much it differs uh, necessarily, but here's here's the problem that I have with the, the traditional ideas of communication that are out there a lot. It's we focus so much on the words that we write and the messages that we construct and what's actually said. And, you know, then there's some nonverbal stuff too thrown in there. 
But for me, I'm a very action-oriented person. So unless my words are producing direct action or change, I don't think they're successful. So when I decided to look at communication and call it dynamic communication, dynamic communication, for me, it's successful communication. It's measured by the actions and the results that you generate, not the messages that you produce. Because as we all know, the most perfectly well-constructed, grammatically correct, beautifully articulated message does not always produce change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's very results-focused. It is. It's results-focused completely. And you know, throughout the idea of the book and bringing up 27 different strategies into it, it talks about communication and really being the communicator who's confident, progressive, proactive, adaptable, stimulating. And again, just results oriented. It's communication focusing on results, not just communication for transferring information. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that because I think if you look at how language changes and evolves and shifts, and some people get so crazy about that, if, if it's serving the purpose, then you're communicating, then you're, I mean, really, that's, that's what it's about. And I love that kind of geeky side of it. And Speaking of geek, uh, I think it's time to get our geek on a little bit because I love this idea that you talk about with uncertainty reduction theory. And it sounds so scientific and cool. (laughs) And so how does that really matter in the area of customer experience and communication around that? You know, to backtrack a little bit and to kind of reference some of the, you know, introduction that you guys gave earlier, it's I taught at a university for 11 years. And when you're teaching at a university, you are forced to teach theory. Well, what Mm -hmm. always drove me nuts is, you know, you teach, you'd have the textbooks, and it may have given some examples, but it didn't talk about, again, the results that were derived from using or implementing a theory correctly. So when I set out to write this book, I joke that, you know, I get my professor geek on a lot in this book, because I want to make the theoretical tangible for people. So yeah, these theories are there for a reason. And they're useful, but the problem is they often don't get applied. And Mm. I know for me, that was a pet peeve of academia in general, which is one of the reasons why I left is because I wanted all this applied stuff and it wasn't there. So every time I bring up a theory that sounds all geeky, like uncertainty reduction theory, I try to explain it in a book in a way that anyone could understand. I mean, I think at one point I talk about two guys sitting at a bar drinking shots and making a diagram. You know, it's <laughs> at least that's how I envision it in my head. But <laughs> so, so mostly, most of Jeannie and my uh, podcast meetings. I got it. That's true. <laughs> that's know? true. There, there's an element of that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, Jeannie, to answer specifically uncertainty reduction theory, you know, I can't come up with it. These guys, Berger, Calabrese in the 70s came up with this idea. And they, you know, they sat around, they were hanging out, maybe they were smoking, who knows what they were doing, but they thought, you know, (laughs) hmm, I think it's important that we know what type of information people need in order to feel comfortable sharing with others. So, you know, like before you disclose something, let's say you're on your first date, what does someone need to share with you in order for you to, you know, cough something back up in return, so to speak. And Mm -hmm. when it comes to business, right, when it comes to dealing with our customers, we have to understand that they are constantly seeking out information about us to reduce their uncertainty about us. And when the theory was first created, you know, there was no Facebook, there wasn't Snapchat, there wasn't mm-hmm. Twitter, there, heck, I, there weren't even cell phones unless you were in the military, right? So right. 
there was really not a way for people to look up information with the, uh, on you other than word of mouth or maybe a flyer or a brochure or a billboard or driving by your storefront. So oftentimes your first interaction was face-to-face, whereas now the first interactions people have with you and the way people reduce uncertainty about you, which means they find information about you to the point where they feel comfortable calling you or emailing you or sending you a chat message, it's all done online. And that fundamentally changes how we need to think about interacting with our customers. Hmm. That's, that's interesting. And it kind of throws back to some of the conversations we've had about how this world has changed so much and people don't just meet anymore. We, we check each other out in all these different ways um, before we even ever connect in real life. So it's a really important thing to apply to today's world. And you live that, Jill. I mean, I'll give give you credit because I, I've watched your videos, and you're just amazing on video. And you, you, you it's really an art form you've mastered. And you, I feel I know you better from your videos, even though we've met in person and talked in person. You know, your videos have gotten given me an even uh, sort of broader lens into who you are. And so you really live that message, which is really cool. Well, thanks for that compliment. And I think it's I think it's a good lesson for anyone in business, right? If your stuff online isn't matching the persona that you're giving off in person, there's going to be a massive gap between expectations and reality. And you're going to lose customers that way. I mean, the only time it's positive is when someone approaches you and they're thinking, well, he may not be the right person or the most smart person or the most inventive person, but people say he's okay. So let me just give him a chance. And then you blow him out of the water, right? Like that's a good expectations gap. But most of the time, that's not the case. Most of the time, people are giving off a lot of BS online, crafting these, (laughs) as we say, these perfect communication messages. And then the reality is far from that perfection. Mm-hmm. Wait, people BS online? This is all new to me. Is it? Oh my God. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just wrecked your world. We Jeannie, need to take a shot. <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. And I'm sorry to tell you, Jeannie, sometimes people online aren't even nice. Oh my goodness. What? I, I, I'm just letting you know. I, I, don't, I don't want you to be too crestfallen. So, okay. So, what is live the, in my bubble? <laughs> I'm a bit of a nerd, so I like the academic bent, and I, I want to make sure everybody listening here knows that Jill does an amazing job in the book of keeping it real and speaking in a very super conversational tone. So even when we hit theory and we hit big words like I'm about to drop here, uh, <laughs> they're, they're really explained in a, a su- super amazingly practical way. But I am going to ask the very question you ask in the book. WTF does the word panopticon have to do with customer service? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that, you know, that's one of the chapter subtitles, right? It's, uh, I try to make this so approachable and colloquial for people. And even just in saying colloquial now I've, you know, ex, you know, gotten people like, what the heck did she just say? But I try to make, (laughs) I try to make the language as, as reasonably common as possible because I think so many times when you're reading books, people are using big words for the sake of using big words. And it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's like, really, did you just sit and like right click in your Microsoft Word document and find synonyms? <laughs> like, yes, they did. And in many cases, <laughs> it's so. And now I'm not saying you shouldn't pay attention to your word choice. Word choice is important. But for me, if I can break a complex process down into something simple so people can actually use it, like, why wouldn't I? It's just silly. Mm-hmm. So, Adam, the panopticon. I just love saying this word. I don't know why. It just kind of rolls off the tongue for the geeks in the audience. Like, everyone, repeat after me. One, two, three, panopticon. You know? It just comes <laughs> up. And 
what is, to me, this is actually one of my favorite chapters. So I'm geeked out that you asked about this one in particular. It's the idea of a panopticon. And this is, this is the example I talked about with the shot glasses. So, you know, we're chilling out in the late 18th century. And this English philosopher dude is visiting his brother. His brother's hanging out because he got employed by some royal you know, faction in modern day Belarus. So this is why I'm thinking, you know, Belarus, Russia, they're all in the same area. They're drinking vodka. They're having shots. They're just having a chat. And, you know, his brother who's working for this royal dude has been tasked with building a structure so that this royal dude can basically observe all of his employees without moving too much. Because of course, heaven forbid those royals move. And the guy thought, well, if we build this floor, like this work floor with an elevated platform and, you know, the, the guy stands up in the middle, you can really more easily observe. And, you know, in the late 18th century, we're thinking this is brilliant. This hasn't been done yet, you know, other than standing on the side of a cliff and looking down. So they start talking about this. And Jeremy, after he's done with this visit, I think he must have gotten really drunk because he comes back to the UK and says, this would make a phenomenal design for prisons because that's what anyone would naturally think then, right? So he takes this design and the design of the Panopticon prison, which is actually still used today, originated. And it's basically when you build a prison in a round shape and in the center is a round cylindrical guard tower with one-way glass, right? One-way mirror. So in the tower, you can see out, but no one can see in. And what it did was it enforced compliance and good behavior from all of the prisoners because they never knew if they were being watched or not. So they couldn't afford to take the risk. Now, what's interesting for me is I'm like, but that model still makes sense in a business standpoint, because when you buy from a company, you know, I just made an online purchase about 30 minutes before we started having this conversation today on a tool to help me with my social media. And I want to know that once I put money into a company and a product that they're there for me, that they're watching me the entire time, even if I don't need them, right? It's like a safety net. So WTF is a panopticon. And what does it have to do with customer service? Well, your customers need to feel like they are being watched and protected and that their purchase is guarded. They need to know that they can communicate with you, that they have good customer service, that they can always get some type of a response, even if that response is your message was conceived, we refer, you know, we're confirming that, uh, your message was received, we are confirming that. Yes, you conceived a message. That was really good. Um, <laughs> no, well, technically, technically they did. <laughs> yeah, you know, yes, you conceived the message and delivered it. But, you know, the message got there, but we won't be getting back to you tomorrow. Again, at least it communicates an expectation. Mm -hmm. So the idea of the panopticon when it comes to customer service is what are you communicating continually to your customers to let them know that the purchase wasn't made in vain? They're not going to regret it later or come back with a case of buyer's remorse. And there's a number of different strategies on how to accomplish that in the chapter. Well, and I love this because reassurance is one of the things I talk about a lot because that's all we need as human beings sometimes. And yet big companies forget that. <laughs> they forget to reassure us. And so I think it's so important for customer service. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Um, so I love that very much. And I also loved the concept of a listening or the listening matrix. And so I was wondering if you would share a little bit about that and, and how that is applied to sales and customer service. 
Well, first, we must all get our Neo and Trinity outfits on. I want the sunglasses, <laughs> the boots, the capes. You know, I'm I, doing I the like, cool slow motion avoiding the bullet thing right now. You just yes. can't see me. I took, the, I took the other pill, so I didn't get to do any of this. <laughs> Man, so we know who to vote off the island first, Jimmy, don't we? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So the listening matrix. So clearly, I like coming up with when I don't use someone else's cool terms and then, of course, give them credit for it. I kind of like to come up with my own IP, my own models. And truth be told, when I first pitched the book, the listening matrix was almost the entire book. And then I decided it wasn't the right book for this right time. And I think it'll come in the future. Spoiler alert, right? But <laughs> it's, a, it's a concept that I think is so important. And the way this model is designed is, you know, I was a teacher at the university for over a decade. I studied this. I did my graduate work in it, blah, 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 all those, you know, things that we feel the need to say because they give us credibility. But what really matters in the end is that there is not a whole lot of stuff out there about how we understand how others listen to us. And when we're trying to sell something, for example, and that's a context in this book that it's presented in, when we're trying to sell, most salespeople, you know, traditionally trained salespeople have a list of questions they're supposed to ask. And based on how they answer, they move to a next one. And then if they don't answer correctly, we move back and present something else. And we have all these features and blah, blah, blah. But the world has changed again. All of the things that the traditional salesperson used to do, that they were classically trained to do, aren't as relevant anymore. They don't need to memorize and regurgitate bits of information and product features because people get those online before they even set up a sales meeting in the first place. So the listening matrix is actually designed to train what I would call the future sales force, the new age sales force, or you know, the not classically trained sales force, whatever you want to call it, where we're looking for a salesperson who can actually be more of a collaborator with the business. So it's more of a product integration role instead of a sales role. Because what you have to do is show someone that your product or service can successfully integrate into their life to make a positive impact on their condition, no matter what it is, whether you have a medical product or a medical service, whether you have, um, you're a lawyer, you're trying to help someone regulate some things or set up some business structures, whatever it is, you're going to change their condition for the better. But you can't know what that condition is unless you're asking the right questions and unless you know how people are engaging. So the matrix is set up on two sides, which is you're either listening for information, the red pill or the blue pill, if you will, right? Or listening for knowledge, right? <laughs> oh my gosh, I need to do an infographic with that. That would be brilliant. Thank you guys. You have helped me brainstorm my next social media move. Wonderful. Fantastic. Right? So information on one side, knowledge on the other. What people need to know is when people are listening for information, they are not buying. People do not make decisions based on information. People make decisions based on knowledge. So you need them to enter into the knowledge matrix, which means they are actually asking you questions about how something integrates within their role, within their business, within their home, whatever you're selling. It's when they're starting asking questions beyond the basic facts and features when you know they're listening at a different level. If they're just writing notes down, for example, they're not really listening in a way that's going to lead to a purchase. If they're just sitting there contemplating and milling things over and thinking about how something actually works or would function, 
they're not ready to buy. But when they start interpreting how something will impact their world, they are moving in that direction of knowledge. And that's when they'll be a decider. So the matrix is something you can enter. And then as you progress through it, you actually get to know the questions that you can ask to guide them towards the knowledge side instead of keeping in the information. Enter the matrix. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Now I want to do a photo shoot too with like my Trinity outfit. That would be so cool. Oh, it'd be amazing. Yeah, like if you can, you got to find a payphone for the shoot. That's going to be the hard (gasps) part now. Yes. Oh my gosh, (laughs) such a good idea. (laughs) Sweet. Oh man, this has been great. So any, anytime we can drop a Matrix reference in, I, I'm all in. So this is <laughs> you know, right. But let's let's be clear. It was only the first Matrix, not two and three. We're just talking about right. the first one, folks. <laughs> I I'm with you on that one too. We're all, yeah. <laughs> I think the world is with us on that. There's, I think so. Yeah. Yes, there's some exactly. de- debate on different sequels. There's not much debate on the Matrix. So this no, is like, no, it's no. one, and you just stop. Yeah. Are there are there others? I just choose to block that out because I'm in my little happy place bubble. That's because you took the other pill, right? Exactly. Yes. (laughs) And where did this conversation end up going? Adam and Jeannie and Jill. So something about communication at some point. I remember that. (laughs) I don't know. Well, speaking of, so one of the things I liked was your uh, the GPS of communication, and that's talking about you know communicating up, communicating laterally, and down. One of the things uh, I want to preface this that it doesn't talk about is what I like is there's I think people get confused sometimes. I want to hear your take on the strategy of doing this, because often people don't really have a strategy for going up, down or lateral. They have an attitude for going up, down and lateral. And what I mean is, you know, they treat the people below them terribly. They treat the people they need above them very well. (laughs) And they treat the people laterally, uh, you know, with, uh, I don't know, circumspect uh, (laughs) something. (laughs) So, uh, so, uh, yeah, talk about the strategy part as far as like a, a communication approach. What are some insights there? Yeah, it's a great question. And this is, you know, people think up, down or lateral. And you typically think on an organizational chart, right, in turn of, terms of hierarchy. But it's not just that. Someone has power over you if they have a resource that you need. They have the resource you don't. You need it. In that instance, they have a little power over you, Right. So one of the first rules of negotiations is level the power field. Uh, you know, not just the playing field, but the power field. Literally, you want to make sure you're kind of you can get it on even keel as much as possible. But when it comes to uh, how you communicate up, and Adam, I like you know they have an attitude about it, and I I always say in communication, shed the egos, shed the attitudes, and get down to how you can create win-win environments for people. And so in the chapter, I like to put out strategies in terms of balances. Right. So, for example, if you're communicating with someone who is above you in the organizational hierarchy or has something that you need, you want to balance politeness with a clear task orientation. Right. It's not always about buttering someone up. And, you know, when uh, classes on persuasion, I'm talking about like in the 50s and 60s, 1950s, 1960s, you know, started coming out. It's like, well, you always got to say nice things to people and butter them up and you attract more people, more flies with honey than vinegar and blah, 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 you know, all that type of stuff. And I'm not saying don't be polite, but if you're going into someone's office or space, when you need something of them, you need to be friendly, but you need to get to the point. Most people, especially if we're talking about CEOs and companies, every moment of their day is accounted for. You do not have time to mince words. You don't have time to waste talking about the weather. There's no point in that. 
I'm not saying be crass, but I'm saying be polite, you know, be respectful of time and move forward. And same thing with friendliness, with the respect for authority, right? If someone has something you want, yes, you're going to be nice. You're probably going to be polite. But again, there's a there's a line between kissing someone's butt and making it obvious <laughs> that that's what you're doing versus just being respectful. And so some of those strategies are outlined there. Do you want me to talk about some downward and lateral ones too? Absolutely. Let's rock it. Cool. So, you know, downward. So when someone is typically below you, and as Adam said, you know, you have that, oh, well, I am all up here on high. Hello, I am royalty. You are the proletariat and I will treat you as <laughs> such, you know. They, uh, you know, you, you change. Your attitude changes communication. So again, strip yourself of that ego, strip yourself of that attitude, and really focus on what you can do in terms of the information you need to gather in order to effectively analyze and make decisions with this person, right? And a lot of times, if you're in, let me give a specific example, you're in a managerial role, and you have an employee coming to you with a complaint, right? And managers deal with that quite frequently. So you're dealing with a complaint, and someone is stuck in the mode of, oh, I'm just complaining, and this isn't fair, whatever. It's really important to acknowledge that you're hearing that, like, listen, I understand that you have a problem with X, Give me some of the information that I need to better understand this problem. So you really focus on the information gathering before jumping to a decision. So you have that for your analysis. Um, you know, also really focusing on the accountability of the person. And that's a hard role, especially as our lines, you know, our hierarchies and organizations are becoming more and more lateral. At least that's how a lot of organizations are structuring them. So it's really important to balance that respect, but you still have to keep people accountable. Like don't let them take that more friendly nature for granted. But you do need to know that we live in a society where heaven forbid, we are not cogs in a wheel and each person is an individual with different needs and different perspectives. So you have to respect that, but keep them accountable for what's going on. So it's really saying as a manager, instead of, again, I am royalty, you are the, you know, a plebeian down there, my little minions to do whatever I need. It's, you know, taking away that attitude, but saying, Hey, I, you know, I respect what you're doing in this position. Um, I like what you've done here, or this isn't working as well as we thought. Tell me what resources you need to keep this on schedule. You know, it's just mm -hmm. being proactive again. I've said that word a couple times back up. And then lateral is sometimes the hardest because if you need something from a peer in that moment, they actually may hold a little power over you, right? Because you need something they have. And at the same time, they're still a buddy or a friend. So it's really important to make sure you recognize your role and your relationship independent of the task or what you're asking. So for example, if you're asking a friend to cover for you and for whatever reason, it's been a crap month and you've had to ask him to cover for you a couple of times, acknowledging that right out, like, listen, I know I've asked you to cover my shift a couple times this month. This is what I'm dealing with. I promise you, I haven't you know, taken it for granted. I will make it up for you next month. It's just really about keeping that level playing field, but recognizing that someone in a lateral capacity has gone above and beyond to help you. Well, that's what I like. I like the, I like the strategies and, I, for, and the approach because I think so many people approach it from from the standpoint we talked about earlier you know what's what's my power position and they they go from there as opposed to really tailoring the communication you know, tactically or strategically however you want to say it and I, I think it's absolutely great advice but this has been fantastic jill so 
I would like to just let the audience know where we can find out more about dynamic communication, everything you do, and all that good stuff. You know, I'm everywhere on social at Dynamic Jill, and I will probably speak for any podcast guest and any podcast host that one of the most amazing gifts you can get is if you got anything from this message, even if it was just a laugh at me dressing up in a Trinity outfit and finding a phone booth somewhere in this world that still exists, you know, tweet that to us. Let us know that you enjoyed this conversation with us. I think that's, you know, one of the greatest gifts we can get. Um, and then my book, it's uh, available at bookstores on Amazon, and you can find out more at dynamiccommunicationbook.com. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Jill. We really appreciated having you on, and it was an excellent discussion. Well, thank you both. I really enjoyed it. Well, I think that there are so many things to take away from this one, but one of the things that really stuck with me was this idea of what are we really listening for? Are we listening for knowledge? Are we listening for other things to really, for insights? And what does that mean for how we communicate to others? How can we help them hear what we want them to hear? And all the matrix jokes aside, the listening matrix is a really neat tool. And I think mm -hmm. it adds a lot of value. It's something you can really use. I agree. I agree. And you know, Jill has fantastic videos online, so we encourage everybody to go check those out, as well as her book, Dynamic Communication. There are a lot of great strategies in there as well. So um, yet again, I have a to-do list, Adam. This has to stop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but one of my favorite things is adding to your to-do list. But Well, that's only true if it's <laughs> reductive to mine. I really don't. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm agnostic if it just adds to yours. But if it reduces mine at the same time, that's what I call a win-win. <laughs> See, you were communicating very effectively there. <laughs> well, we really hope you had a lot of great takeaways from this discussion as well. And of course, we'd love to hear about those. So feel free to tweet us or contact us at crackthecustomercode.com. Thank you so much for listening to Crack the Customer Code. We are a proud member of the C-Suite Radio family. If you like C-Suite Radio, then check out C-Suite TV, and watch in-depth interviews with business content for C-suite leaders and entrepreneurs. And it's all on demand. Get insider secrets by going to csuitetv.com. We really appreciate you being here. I'm Jeannie Walters, and you can learn more about me and our customer experience investigation consulting at 360connects.com. And I'm Adam Tepork, and you can learn more about me and our customer service workshops and training for your frontline teams at customersatstick.com. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of your customers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>